Well, there are certain ideas, certain concepts that shape all of us, that shape the way we live, that shape the way that we interact with other people, things that motivate us to do the things we do. And for me, especially in the context of ministry, there's one thing that has really been foundational to shaping the way that I think, the way that I pray, and the way that I preach. And that's this idea of communal or corporate identity versus individual identity. Thinking in terms of we or thinking in terms of I. And for me, my thoughts and my convictions were greatly shaped by living for nearly a decade in a culture that is much more collectivistic than individualistic. While we in the West are way more bent towards an individualistic approach to life and faith, there is still an unescapable reality that cultures and civilizations are always greater than individuals. Even the greatest and most influential or notorious person in a certain culture, they can't outlive the effects that that culture has. They can't overshadow the realities of the complexities that define an entire group of people. And there's this strange paradox that we're confronted with in our summer sermon series as we think about these things. We're looking primarily at Jesus and how he executes the offices, his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Now, in one sense, as we look at this, it kind of feels like an individualistic focus, right? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about him as prophet, priest, and king. However, as we have already seen, the promises that are made to God's people in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ, these were made for a people, in order to sustain, to encourage, and to motivate them to trust in the Lord with all of their hearts and to not lean on their own understanding. That people is the people of God. That is us. These promises were made for us. All these things that we're looking at referring to Christ, they're fulfilled in him, but they apply to us. So it is not this individualistic focus. So we need to understand this flow of biblical history. We need to understand how we fit into it if we are going to seek to live faithfully for God in our day and age. Now I want, us to give a, I want to give us a couple categories to hang our hats on so that we can unpack what it means that Jesus Christ is our prophet as we've been anticipating and building up to these last several weeks. You've been around here any length of time. You've heard us talk quite a bit about the already and the not yet. The already is things that have happened in the past or things that are our current reality, things that we are currently experiencing. And the not yet are the future things. They're the things that are to come that we have not yet experienced. So let's talk about this in terms of Jesus as our prophet. We've seen this in the past two weeks, last, or two weeks ago in Deuteronomy chapter 18. We saw how God spoke through Moses and said that the Lord would raise up a prophet like him from among their brothers and it is to him that they shall listen. So there was this forward-looking emphasis there. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 23, and we talked about the righteous branch that God promised to raise up. He was talking about raising up a king and it would be a king who was unlike the shepherds of Israel, those who were being unfaithful. And we also saw how 
The Lord addressed prophets and priests as well through Jeremiah. And ultimately, it was pointing forward to this longing for the Lord to right the wrongs that were caused by the sins and by the unfaithfulness of Israel's leaders. So the question that we've been confronted with and that I will ask us again today is to whom are we listening? To whom are we listening? And what type of people should we be in light of what we hear? So to whom are we listening and what type of people should we be in light of what we hear? In other words, every moral ought, every question about right and wrong, what's pleasing to God or what's not pleasing to him, it's not asked in a personal vacuum. It's not just what should I do, but it's what should we do? I know I've been harping on this a lot this summer, but the the hashtag you do you or hashtag live your truth, these things are false. These things are not loving. It's not loving to say to someone, you do you or live your truth. As Christians, it's you do what God commands, right? And you live God's truth. And far from being cold and oppressive, that's where true freedom is found. You do what God commands and live God's truth is actually freeing for people. The world wants freedom, right? But they're, they're looking in the wrong place and they're finding it in the wrong way because they're looking for their own individual needs and they're looking for self-autonomy and doing whatever makes them happy. It's backwards. It's not where true freedom is found. This is what is true of us in Christ. We are freed from sin and death to obey God, to love him, to live his truth, and to walk in it, to hear our good shepherd Jesus' voice, the one who laid down his life for the sheep. That's us. He laid his life down for us so that we might live. And that's why we're here That's what this is all about. So let's not miss the heart of the gospel as we unpack all of these beautiful truths of who Jesus is as our prophet, our priest, and our king. The approach that we're going to take today is a little bit different uh, than what we normally do. I'm going to actually walk through a bunch of different texts in order to help us see more clearly how Jesus executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. So the first place that I want us to turn is to the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. If you have the Pew Bibles, that starts on page 802 and then over to page 803. Malachi chapter 4 here at the end of the Old Testament is a future promise of judgment on the wicked and of restoration for God's people. Pay attention to the role of prophet here in Malachi chapter 4. Going to be reading the whole chapter. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, 
The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Well, what do we see here in this text? As we close the book on the Old Testament and, and anticipate what God is going to do as we open the New Testament. What do we see here? There's an emphasis on the day of the Lord. And it's clear here that this is speaking about final judgment. If you look at verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. Definitely some clear parallels there between what Malachi is saying and what we see at the end in Revelation chapter 20, right? With the lake of fire. Then we see the promise of Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord in verse 5. This is a promise that God is going to perform the restorative work that he has promised to do in Israel. So that's what we see. Again, we've talked about this in the prophets, the cycle of judgment and restoration, judgment and restoration. The Old Testament closes with this word of judgment. Judgment is coming on the nations, but God is going to fully restore his people. Let's turn ahead to Luke's gospel, about 50 pages forward, page 855 in your pew Bible, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, is the angel Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah in the temple, telling of John the Baptist's birth. We read, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the unjust to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Notice how the, the two testaments are tied together here with this theme of God restoring his people, of this prophet Elijah turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. So the anticipation is continuing to build, and the question is, what is God going to do for his people? Flip forward one more book to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 here, we're fast forwarding about 30 years. Uh, this is John the Baptist's public ministry in Israel. It has begun. And in verses 19 to 23 of John chapter 1, we read this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is very interesting here. John the Baptist answers several questions related to his identity based upon the anticipation in the Old Testament. He tells them that he is not the Christ, first of all. Second, he tells them that he is not Elijah. They clearly expected that the actual real Elijah would would come back. Uh, And there might be some confusion here because Jesus actually called John Elijah, but it was because John fulfilled this prophetic role here that we saw in in Luke chapter 1 of turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. But clearly, John is not actually Elijah. John also says, I am not the prophet. The question was, is John the prophet of whom Moses spoke in Deuteronomy chapter 18? He says emphatically, no, I am not the prophet. What he does say in verse 23 is that I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John is the preparer for the true prophet. He is making straight the path for the Lord. He's making straight the way and preparing the way for the Lord. Now notice I've been using a certain word repeatedly here. Anticipation. The questions about John's identity are all based on anticipation. The anticipation of God's people. One of the things I love about this time of year is that it's wedding season. Yeah, we've got some newlyweds and soon-to-be newlyweds. All about anticipation. And I love the different stages along the way, right? The dating stage. It's when is the, when is the ring going to get put on that finger, right? When is that engagement going to happen? And then the engagement stage. It's when we have to pick a wedding day, right? And we have to do all this preparation and we got to figure out who to put on the list and who to leave off the list and all these, there's all this anticipation that goes into it and it's, it can be overwhelming. But for, for the soon-to-be bride and groom, it's so much more than just the details of the wedding day. It's an anticipation and a preparation for a lifetime together. Something that Lindsay and I love to emphasize in premarital counseling is this idea of preparing for a lifetime together. I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? But you're not just preparing for the wedding day or you're not just preparing for like your first year of marriage. You're preparing for a lifetime together. And there's always anticipation. There's anticipation of your 25-year anniversary, your, maybe your 50-year anniversary. There's all these anticipations and these looking forward, these ideas of looking forward. And ultimately, all of that anticipation of the bride and groom points us forward to Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride, which we'll come back to that idea in a little bit. So anticipation is a huge part of all of this. I think we've gotten a pretty clear picture from our last two weeks in the Old Testament and of the ending of Malachi and the descriptions here of John the Baptist at the beginning of the 
the New Testament, we've got a pretty clear picture of this idea of anticipation. Now we're going to actually fast forward a bit, and we're going to look at the first few verses of Hebrews. So you can turn to the book of Hebrews. It's on page 1001, if you have the Pew Bible. <clears throat> I've mentioned this a couple times in the last few weeks. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Hebrews in the fall. So again, this is just kind of whetting our appetites a bit. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, I want us to notice a couple of things here that the author of Hebrews mentions as the groundwork is laid for the arguments about the supremacy of God's Son. First, there is an acknowledgement here, correctly, that God spoke long ago at many times and in many ways to their fathers by the prophets. Now, this goes all the way back to Abraham over 2,000 years prior. It includes Moses. It includes Elijah and Elisha, the, the miracle-working prophets and the, the speaking prophets. It includes the writing prophets, all those. When we talk about the prophets in the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament books, it includes all of those prophets. And the emphasis here is that God spoke by the prophets. They were his mouthpiece, and they communicated his truth to his people. Second thing to notice here is that there is a time shift from long ago to but in these last days. Now remember the text that we started with in Malachi chapter 4. What did the Lord tell his people in Malachi 4? He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So God's people were to be marked by their anticipation of the last days. And now we're told here by the author of Hebrews that we are in the last days and that God has now spoken to us by his son in these last days. Third thing for us to notice is the superiority of Jesus to the Old Testament prophets. These descriptions here in Hebrews 1 at the beginning here are enough to make our brains explode. We can't even begin to fathom how great God's son is. Listen to these descriptors. The heir of all things. He created the world. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now just sit with each one of these things for five minutes and see if you can think worthy enough thoughts about Christ and his majesty based on these few descriptors here. I don't think we can even do that. He's so majestic and so glorious. So Jesus, he has spoken to us in these last days as our prophet. 
and he has made purification for our sins as our priest. Finally, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as our king. Again, since our focus is on Christ as our prophet here, let's consider how God has spoken to us in these last days through his son. Again, the answer to the catechism catechism question for today is very helpful. Christ executeth, present tense, Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. That's what he's done. He's already has done that in the past tense in his earthly ministry. He does it in the present tense, in the here and now, as we hear his word and as we worship him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the future tense, he promises to continue to do this. He promises to continue to reveal to us by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. So let's look at some examples here from Jesus' earthly ministry that will help us to better understand how he executes his office as a prophet. Now, you don't have to turn here, but you can if you want. There are a few examples from Luke's gospel. Uh, We should be somewhat familiar with this as we've spent a long time uh, going through Luke's gospel. But pay specific attention here to the role of the word and the spirit in Jesus' ministry as prophet. In Luke chapter 4, I mentioned a few of these examples in Friday night, on Friday night at the summer conversation. Luke chapter 4, just before Jesus begins his public, public ministry, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days by the devil. And how did he overcome those temptations? What did he do? Quoted scripture, right? It is written. And we also discussed at our summer conversation, how Jesus actually never said the words, thus saith the Lord, before he said anything, because everything that he said as our prophet, as God incarnate, was the word of the Lord. Jesus never had to say, thus saith the Lord, because everything he said was the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Then following the temptation in the second half of chapter 4, He's in Nazareth in his hometown. He stands up in the synagogue to read from the scroll of Isaiah the prophet in the synagogue. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed. Okay, if you've been reading Belcher's book, he's been talking about this, how prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed in the Old Testament. They were all set apart as holy for the ministry that God had called them to do. So Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim three times. He says, proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the work of the prophet, to proclaim, to speak God's word, to say what he has to say. So he's the anointed one. He's the one who proclaims God's word. Then he rolls up the scroll and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled. That's a prophecy word. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when we looked at this passage quite a while back, we we talked about how this scene here is paradigmatic. It's a big word, but this gives us the paradigm. It gives us the framework for all of Jesus' ministry. This is setting the stage for what he was going to do, coming to set the captives free, coming to be the prophet who would speak the word of God. 
And when he does that, this claim that he makes here, when he says this is fulfilled and you're hearing, it actually causes those in the synagogue eventually to attempt to kill him, right? They, they drive him out to the edge of the city and they want to, to throw him off the, the cliff, but he, he escapes. So the recognition of who Jesus is as the promised prophet like Moses, it increased during his ministry. There were kind of little tidbits, little snippets of it. When he raised the widow's son from the dead in Luke chapter 7, in front of this great crowd, we read that fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And that's a fulfillment going back to Luke chapter 1, with the promise that God would, would visit his people. So again, there's this, there's this continuing anticipation, there's this continuing building of who Jesus is and what he's doing as God's prophet. But as we know, the reception to, to him and to what he did was not always positive. Jesus knew that he came to be rejected and despised like Isaiah had promised. In Luke chapter 13, when Jesus laments over Jerusalem as the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, he told them that it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Now, he was talking here about the cross. I want us to focus our attention for a few minutes here how the cross of Jesus is actually a huge part of his ministry as prophet. Not just as priest, the cross is a huge part of his ministry as prophet. I sent an email out earlier this week with a recommendation uh, for a newly published book on prophet, priest, and king. It's called Man of Sorrows, King of Glory. What the Humiliation and Exaltation of Jesus Mean for Us by John T. Rhodes. That's the quote on the cover of the worship guide. It's from that book. Uh, it's like 120 pages, pretty easy read. I got the Kindle version of it and read it like in a pretty short amount of time. Uh, I would highly recommend if you're looking for some extra reading to do this summer, uh, go and grab that book. It's, it's really fantastic. And one of the things that really struck me is in the chapter on Jesus' humiliation as our prophet, he ends the chapter with a section called The Cross as Pulpit. The Cross as Pulpit. That's a little bit of a longer quote here, but stick with me. He says, The cross is not just about Christ's priestly work. It also stands at the heart of his prophetic ministry. The cross preaches to us. The cross is Christ's pulpit. Of course, the cross preaches to us of the love and justice of God and of the unflinching desire of Jesus to save us. He says we'll speak more of this in the following chapter. But here, let's focus on how at the cross, Christ sets us an example, laying down his life that we might live. Although our lives and deaths obviously don't atone for sin as his does, his death is still a pattern for us. We are to take up our cross and follow him suffering and laying down our lives for his sake and in love for our neighbors. This is a major theme of 1 Peter. The apostle encourages Christians to endure suffering and remain godly, however unjustly they are treated. Why? For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter 2, 21. Rhodes continues, in fact, the cross is meant to completely reshape how we see the world. 
No one saw this more clearly than Martin Luther. He spoke often of the difference between theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. Theologians of glory still think and work in worldly terms. God is to be found in might and majesty, power and glory. Theologians of the cross realize that when God was acting most powerfully in history, all one would have seen was a naked Jewish man being crucified on a hill outside a relatively unimportant provincial city. There was no outward glory, no angel choir, no triumphant display, yet that cross was the ultimate revelation of the power and wisdom of God. The cross teaches us not to think as human wisdom teaches. A theologian of glory might reason that because God is great and mighty, the way to heaven must be to become great and mighty too, lording it over others. The theologian of the cross understands that greatness in this kingdom is found in humility and service. This has much to say to our understanding of church. Theologians of glory will naturally want a church that impresses the world. Beautiful people. Ideally, a sprinkling of celebrities, all those Oshkosh celebrities that we're trying to reach. Worship styled after whatever happens to be hot right now. A preacher and sermon that fit hand in glove with contemporary culture. Funny, chatty, non-confrontational, non-dogmatic. Theologians of the cross are content to trust God's upside-down means. They know that the power and wisdom of God are found through the preaching of Christ crucified. They know that not many of them look impressive in worldly terms. And he quotes 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, are, that are things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He concludes, they know that the message, the messengers, and the method preaching all seem foolish and weak. But they know this too. Jesus also looked utterly foolish, utterly defeated as he hung dying at Calvary. Yet in that death was the power and glory to transform the universe. The cross is Christ's pulpit. And we are the messengers. We've been given a message. It's something that is utter foolishness in the eyes of the world. Taking up our cross as it crosses and living out the message of the cross and preaching the message of the cross is not the way to get ahead in the world. It's actually a great way to lose. But take heart, dear Christians. Our losses are only temporary. They are only this worldly losses while we wait for other worldly gains that are unfathomable. I want to wrap up with one more familiar passage that clearly mentions the word and the spirit and in our call as to be Christ's witnesses. 
Luke chapter 24, page 885, Luke 24. James preached on this passage four weeks ago as we wrapped up our Luke series. I feel like this is a passage that we could preach on every single week. It never gets old. Luke 24, 44 to 49. Then he says, this is when Jesus appears to his disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my father. I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. For the sake of time, I'm not going to dive into these passages, even though I really wanted to, but go and read John chapter 14 through John chapter 16. In each one of those chapters, Jesus gives deeper explanation of what it means that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, he's going to send the helper, the comforter to be with us. So back to this passage here in Luke, we started off talking about the already and the not yet dynamic in the Christian life. And for Jesus' original followers, there was a not yet anticipation of the promise of the Holy Spirit, the very power of God, the third person of the Trinity, through whom they were enabled to speak the truth of the word of God to the world around them. Now for us, the church, that, that is an already reality since the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has arrived. The Spirit is here. We are no longer waiting for the Spirit. But yet, there is still a not yet reality to our life and our witness in this world. There is a longing and there is an anticipation for the return of Jesus, our great prophet. So the question that I want us to consider this morning is what type of people ought we to be? In other words, how shall we then wait? How shall we be a people like the disciples here in Luke 24 who are led by God's word and God's spirit as we wait for his coming? Three things that I want to close with by way of application and encourage us to consider. If you're taking notes, got three A's for you. First, we are to be an anticipating people. We are to be an anticipating people. I think we can ask ourselves the simple question, what are we longing for? What are we truly longing for in our lives? What are our future hopes? It's so easy to get wrapped up in the things of this world, right? Like you get some new toy and you're like, oh, is this going to last me five years? Is it going to last me 10 years? It's not a bad thing to think about at some level, but it's so easy to get our hopes wrapped up in, in the things of this world, right? And not be thinking about Christ and his kingdom. So are we tied tightly to the things of this world? Or are we, as Peter reminded the early church in 2 Peter 3, 13, 
Are we those who, according to his promise, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? Is that what we're longing for? Now, this doesn't mean that we don't faithfully steward the things that God has graciously given to us, but we also don't hold on to them too tightly. And then I want to ask, are we an anticipating people? Let us also ask ourselves, does the way we live our lives communicate to the watching world that our hopes are not in the shallow promises that this world has to offer, but that our hopes are in Christ, who promises to never leave us and to never forsake us, who by his word and spirit continues to lead us and guide us and protect us and provide for his bride, the church, in which we are so blessed to find our place of belonging. So we are an anticipating people. Second, we are to be an awakened people. If you are in Christ, if you have been born again by the Spirit of God, then the veil of deception has been lifted from your eyes and you now see clearly with new eyes. You have been awakened to the truth of the gospel and there's no turning back to the trivial things that the world attempts to offer you. So the question that we must ask ourselves, are we seeing daily with new eyes that we've been given by Christ? And are we living in light of what Christ our prophet has revealed to us by his word and spirit? This must inform the way that we engage the world around us. We haven't been given new eyes to see just so that we might see. I love the end of the book of Acts when Paul recounted his conversion in Acts 26 to King Agrippa. He recounts how Jesus told him that he had delivered him from the Jews and the Gentiles to whom Christ was sending him. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Are we likewise living as a sent people called by God to be used by God to open others' eyes so that they might see Christ and likewise be forgiven? Now, clearly, we know when we read this that it's not our job to do that, right? It's not our job to save people. And we see this in our last part. We are, thirdly, we are an ambassadorial people. So we are an an anticipating people, an awakened people, and an ambassadorial people. Ambassadors are sent with the authority of a president or of a king to communicate the words of the one who sent them. Christians, we are a sent people. We are ambassadors for Christ. If you are a Christian here today, then you are a part of Christ's mission to spread the gospel to the nations. And you don't have to go across the world to do that. I did that, and I don't have any bigger notches in my belt than any of you do because of that. Because you are called to minister where you're at and to simply go across the street and share the good news of the gospel with your neighbors, which I'll tell you is a heck of a lot harder than striking up a conversation with the taxi driver who just wants to talk to you because you're a foreigner and will talk to you about Western religion, right? It's a heck of a lot harder here when people are like, 
been there, done that, right? I don't want anything to do with you judgmental Christians. It's a lot harder. I need this reminder as much as any of you do. We have been given the great commission. We've not been given the average commission, right? It's the great commission. It's great because the content of our message is great. Christ is our prophet, and he is a great prophet. And in order to experience and to share that greatness with the world, we need to seek to be more and more captivated by our Savior every day. Guys, this is really hard work, but it's worthy work. It's a pursuit that is worth our time and our energy, and we need God to help us in that pursuit. May he give us ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus as he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Let us pray. Our Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your mercy and your grace. We praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We praise you that you have not turned your back on your people. God, even when we walked in sin and rebellion, you pursue us. God, you sent your son to come and to be our true prophet, to speak your words to us to lead us in the way that we might live, to go to the cross, to lay down his life for us. We thank you that the the cross is Christ's pulpit, that the cross speaks the truth of our salvation, that the cross speaks of your mercy and grace, that the cross speaks of, of who we are, of who we once were, dead in our trespasses and sins, enemies of God, now redeemed, adopted, beloved children by your grace. God, may we follow our great prophet. May we continue to anticipate his return. May we live in such a way, may we live as awakened people who long for his return. May we live as ambassadorial people who proclaim the truth of Christ to the world around us. God, we confess that some of those relationships, some of those conversations are difficult. We're tempted to shy away. We're tempted to to not be confrontational. We're tempted to, to just gloss over things that are said when we have opportunities to speak your truth. God, we need to be a people who are awakened by your word and your spirit. We need to be a people who are in your word so that we might speak the truth of your word to people around us. We need to be a people who are filled with your spirit so that we might have boldness to witness to people about the glories of Christ. God, we ask that you would send us out as your anticipating awakened ambassadors to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world around us. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.